Well, good morning. It is uh, good to see you guys this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts this morning. We're going to be in verses 8 to 22 this morning. But if you will open with me, Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Luke writes, beginning in verse 8, A Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb who had never walked. And this man was listening to Paul as he spoke who when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and they've come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds to Paul and Barnabas. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we come before you as we open your word this morning. We ask that you would speak to us. Um, Father, as we see the way Paul and Barnabas will respond to a unique situation, Lord, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would speak to our lives. I pray in the midst of the craziness that's going on and our, uh, with finals approaching and the stresses that are rising, Lord, I pray that for just a brief time this morning that you would allow all that to wash away. And that you give us a pocket of time really just to sit before you and to hear you speak and to hear you lead us and guide us and teach us. Father, I pray that your spirit would be here in a, in a unique, powerful way this morning, Lord, and that you would allow your word to unfold and to speak to us and to challenge us. Father, I pray that my words would be yours and that you would use me however you see fit this morning, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, over the course of this fall, I think every single one of us has been wowed by the exploits of none other than Johnny Football. Amen. Uh, and, and I think in about a week from now, I think he'll likely be collecting his Heisman, rightfully so, all right? Uh, but I think whether it's been his amazing talents on the field or the fact that really he's not been allowed to speak to the media until just this week, I think the hysteria that has been around him has been unprecedented, all right? So I don't know if you can, any guys have been following news articles or seeing uh, little statements have been made all over the place about him, but some of my favorite have been, even just this week, there was a high school student who was sent home, all right? And you guys caught the story because he had had Johnny Manziel's face in the back of his head and Johnny Football right along, along the side, all right? Amazing testimony to the greatness that is Johnny Football right now, all right? Some of you guys may have heard statements like this as well. This is Johnny Manziel's world, and the rest of us are just living in it, right? Some of you guys may have heard, uh, what do uh, Johnny Football and the Moon have in common? They both control the tide. All right. I liked that one, all right? Uh, Some of you guys may have heard this one as well, uh, that Johnny Football doesn't always fumble the ball, but when he does, he picks it up and he throws a touchdown, all right? Uh, And of course, my all-time favorite at this point in time, uh, that Johnny Football is the Chuck Norris of Division I football, all right? In fact, you guys may not have heard this, but actually when Chuck Norris goes to bed at Christmas Eve, he will be wearing Johnny Football pajamas. True story, all right? Look for those at Walmart, all right? Coming Christmas Eve, all right? Uh, And then last but not least, if you could somehow combine Chuck Norris and Tim Tebow, you would get Johnny Football, all right? The statements and the hysteria around this guy, I think, has been unprecedented, all right? It has been amazing to sit back and to kind of laugh and to watch. But I think all of you guys probably more than likely tuned in and wanted to get a glimpse of the press conference that he held, wanted to get a glimpse and, and to hear him on, on airwaves as he was interviewed by Mike and Mike and a few other people this week. Because all of us have seen this guy on the field, but we've been very curious as to what he's like off the field, right? We know the kind of skills and the talents he has on the field, but we've all been curious as to who this guy is and how he's going to handle success, right? If he wins an award that no freshman has ever won, the question becomes, how will it change him and how will it impact him? Will he come back next year as motivated and as humble as he was coming into this year? How will that kind of success and applause and approval of man impact him? 
It's going to matter who he is off the field because how he handles success off the field is going to have an impact on the field next year. And so all of us have been curious and we were tuning in to see what kind of guy is this? I think all of us have experienced and will experience some kind of success in our lives. I don't think any of us have in college or may ever after college experience the kind of hype that Johnny Football has just this year, all right? But whether your successes that you will achieve will be great or will be small, they each will pose a unique threat to you because success and the approval of man are unique threats to you and I as we walk with God and as we walk in a culture that's watching us. In fact, as we open to Acts chapter 14 this morning, I think we're going to see a passage in which Paul and Barnabas are going to find the applause of man and the kind of hype that really overshadows any Heisman hopeful, right? Paul and Barnabas are going to be put on a pedestal and put on a platform that way eclipses anything that any Heisman hopeful has ever found or ever heard, all right? And the question will be, how do Paul and Barnabas handle that? And ultimately, what are they going to show us about how you and I handle success, whether it comes large or it comes small? And how do you and I handle the applause and the approval of man, again, whether it comes large or it comes small? Because how you and I handle it will say much about who we are. And before anyone knows us and before any success ever finds us, you and I have an opportunity right now to be preparing for that kind of success whenever it does find us, when eventually we leave this place. A place where that you are anonymous now, but eventually one day as you leave, you will stand in places. God will do things in your lives. Your successes may be small or they may be large. I don't know. Question is, how are you preparing now for whatever successes you will find? Because success poses a unique threat and a unique danger to you and I. As Paul and Barnabas handle success and as they handle the applause of a man, we're going to see particularly uh, in their response how you and I are to respond to it, how you and I are to prepare for it. And particularly, I think Paul and Barnabas are going to show us three primary fallacies that come with hype and the approval of man. Three myths that really come with applause and the approval of man. And they're going to show us really what those are and therefore how we respond appropriately to it. So really, as we jump into our passage this morning, Acts 14, beginning in verse 8, really begins with basically a little bit of razzle-dazzle, all right? Uh, In verse 8, you're going to see, in a sense, the impossible. Uh, Going back in again, Luke sets up for us really an impossible situation. Notice verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. He was lame from his mother's womb, and he had never walked. Luke could not paint the picture more drastically, more emphatically, that this guy has no hope in verse 8. He's lame from, the, from his mother's womb. He's never walked. He really has no strength whatsoever. This guy has not one fighting chance. Luke is going to paint this picture that is absolutely impossible so they can show us what God can do because God can make the impossible quite possible. If this is a fourth and 40, God's going to do something far more dramatic than that. Look at verse 9. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and he began to walk. The impossible becomes possible. God's going to move in ways that we've seen all throughout the book of Acts this semester so far. You guys remember one of my favorite passages we looked at earlier this semester was in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John were walking on the way to the temple. They passed by a beggar who was sitting there and had been carried there every day by his friends. And he was just begging alms. A guy who was also lame from from the womb and had had never walked in his life and had no hope to walk. And yet Peter and John saw that guy at that point in time and knew that God was wanting the kingdom of God to break in with that guy. Everyone was praying for the kingdom to come, but Peter and John saw, hey, this is where God wants to bring the kingdom. Here we're going to see in Acts 3, all the way throughout the book, God doing the supernatural. And as the supernatural occurs over and over, it wows people. People stand back, people stand back and provide all kinds of acclaim and fame to those who are the miracle makers. Notice really what happens is is Paul and Barnabas will get all kinds of acclaim and fame beginning in verse 11. 
When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and they've come down to us. Verse 12, and they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Up at this point, I know that Paul and Barnabas can tell that the crowds are super excited. That they're marveling and they're, they're in awe of what has just happened and what they've just seen. But I don't think Paul and Barnabas have any idea of exactly what they're saying. Luke tells us that they were speaking in the Lyconian dialect. And so I think Paul and Barnabas likely were there, likely knew that the crowds were animated and responsive. I don't think they had any idea what they were saying. <laughs> it was in a dialect that they didn't speak, but they're going to finally get a clue exactly what they're doing really in verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and then he wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. It's finally the first clue that Paul and Barnabas get a sense of exactly what's happening here. It's not just that the crowds are applauding. It's not just the crowds are astonished, but their astonishment is moved to worship. And they're declaring that these men are gods, and they want to worship them, and they want to praise them. It's interesting how much acclaim and fame can quickly move to worship. If you guys remember even the story just a couple chapters ago of King Herod, if you guys remember that story, eventually those that were responding to his greatness as king began to eventually say that he had the voice of a God, not of a man, and he received that worship to himself, and God killed him on the spot. And then he was eaten by worms. Not really the way that you want to go down, right? Uh, But I'm amazed even throughout the scriptures how easy people are in terms of how quickly they will respond in worship. People are desperate to worship. Uh, One of my favorite shows, uh, movies of all time, is some of the Madagascar uh, franchise, all right? I know. (laughs) Maybe it's just because I have kids. I just think they're gold, all right? Uh, And one of my favorite characters in that uh, whole uh, sequence of movies is is King Julian, the little lemur dude, you know? I think that guy is just awesome. All right? I'm just absolutely entertained and mesmerized by that guy. But I'm also equally mesmerized by how in the world does anyone in their right mind worship that guy and let that guy be king, right? How did he get to power? How does anyone in their right mind not throw that guy off because he has no idea what he's doing and he's completely self-absorbed with himself? If anyone should not be king, it's King Julian, right? But whether it's Madagascar or whether it's the Bible, men and women will worship quickly and they will worship anything at times. I think you and I are desperate to worship often. And so King Herod will quickly take the worship to himself. King Julian quickly takes the worship to himself and they bask in it, right? As if they're tanning, right? Saying, oh, no, no, no. Yes, 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 right? Tell me more, right? Tell me more of my greatness, okay? What's fascinating is going to be in that contrast and in that background will come Paul and Barnabas and they will respond in a very, very different way. Notice in a sense the apostles' response uh, beginning in verse uh, 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Hall heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? Paul and Barnabas were absolutely disturbed by what was happening. King Herod's going to take it to himself and just bask in it. Paul and Barnabas are going to be absolutely disturbed and they're going to respond immediately. The moment they know what's happening is the moment they hit the brakes and they, st- and they tear their robes and they rush out and they say, why are you doing these things? This is absolutely inappropriate, and this is not corresponding to reality. Paul and Barnabas' response to the approval of a man, the response to success, is incredibly different from just about anything that you and I see in our culture today. And frankly, is very different than human natural instinct, right? Who doesn't want to hear the applause of a man? Who doesn't want to be encouraged? Who doesn't want to be told that they're great, that they're significant, that they're worthwhile, or that they're even loved? Who doesn't want that, right? And so in the midst of that kind of praise, in the midst of that kind of hype, Paul and Barnabas tear their robes, they rush out, and they say, stop, 
This is not appropriate. Why in the world are you doing this? What I love about the way the passage unfolds from here on out is that you can get a sense of why they were so frustrated and disturbed by such a response of the crowds. It's not just that they were disturbed, but I want you guys to see exactly why they were disturbed because the reasons for their disturbance really show you and I very much about the very fallacies that come with the approval of man. The fallacies that come with the hype of those that say, hey, you are great, you are significant. In many ways, there's something wrong with that kind of hype. Paul and Barnabas are going to understand that, and I think by their response here, they're going to begin to show us, I think, three basic premises or fallacies that come with hype and the approval of man. The first is this, that hype is inflated. That anytime men and women applaud, anytime there's a great sense of hype and acclaim and fame that is bestowed on people, it is never accurate. It is always inflated above and beyond what is true and actually reality, all right? Uh, one of my uh, favorite personalities is a guy named Bill Parcells, former coach of New York Giants and even the Dallas Cowboys. And this is what he had to say about fame. He says that when everybody's feeding you the cheese, speaking of athletes, it's really hard not to eat it. But don't eat the cheese. You're never as good as people say you are. Always strive to improve yourself. Ignore other opinions, press or TV, agents or advisors, family or wives, friends or relatives, fans or hanger-ons. They don't know what's happening here. As Parcells would motivate and speak to athletes to say, hey, be weary of the applause of man because it's always inflated. (laughs) They're going to tell you you are far better than you actually are, so be very weary of it. I think the same is true of the presence of hype or even the absence of hype, right? You're never as great as people say you are when they're applauding you, but you're also never as bad as they say you, as you may think you are when you're not getting any applause whatsoever. Hype is a very fickle thing. It is always inflated. It is never accurate with what is true reality. Notice the way that Paul and Barnabas will speak to the crowds. They say, why are you doing these things? But then notice they say, we are also men of the same nature as you. Notice their self-declaration as to who they are. I think the apostles are going to reveal an incredible amount of humility as they respond to this kind of hype. <laughs> Way overshadowing anything that any Heisman hopeful has ever experienced. And they will be, on the, be put on the level, very level of God. Say, so, hey, we are, we are of the same nature of you. We are not gods. I think Paul and Barnabas' response kind of does two things. One, it says, hey, we are not as you claim that we are. We are not gods. And then I think Paul and Barnabas go one step further and say, we are of the same nature of you. We are, we are actually no different than you. <laughs> You're applauding us, but we are just like you. There's no reason, there's no need to applaud us. I think Paul and Barnabas knew that the hype, the approval of man, the applause of man is always inflated with what is real. I also think for Paul and Barnabas, the reason why they didn't need to bask in the greatness of that kind of hype and that kind of applause is that I think they knew very clearly who they were. I think they were not just clear of their own limitations and weaknesses. Paul was very clear with his past and how checkered his past was and how the fact that he would not be who he was apart from what God had done. But even more so, I think uh, they had a great sense that their security and their significance was tied to what God had said and what God had done for them, not what others had said and what others would do for them. I think ultimately what you're going to see for the apostles is that as the hype and the approval of man comes, you're going to see men and women, or two men here who were incredibly humble. (laughs) That when the hype and the approval of a man came, it did not change them. Because they were secure and they knew who they were way before the approval of man ever came. I think those that are most willing to bask in the limelight and the success and the, of the applause and the hype of men are those that are the most insecure. Those that are the most insecure, those that are the most needing of hearing that you're great, that you're significant, that you're worthy, are those that are the most willing to bask in that kind of sunlight, even though it's inflated. They're desperate to know that they're worthwhile. 
And so when it finally comes, and they've been chasing it for so long, they just bask in it and they take it in. And so how do you and I respond to that kind of success, that kind of applause and approval, if it ever finds us? I tell you guys, I think the way that you and I respond is by preparing now to grow in humility. I think humility, uh, you can grow in it in two primary ways. One is a, is a critical and accurate sense of self. <laughs> a sense before the Lord to say, hey, here is who I am. Here is how desperate I am in need of a Savior. Here is how desperate I am in need of the ki- kindness and the grace of God because I have weaknesses and I have limitations and I need God desperately. The other way I think that you can grow in humility is not a, a greater sense of how unworthy you are, but a greater sense of how worthy you are because of what God has done and said about you. The great good news of the gospel is not just that Jesus has died and resurrected to show that you have uh, forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But I think the great good news of the gospel is also this. The fact that he's created you and the fact that he has died for you says how greatly valuable you are to him. And how far God has gone and how much he has spoken over you says far more than any other applause and the approval of any other man or woman. When your identity and your significance and your worth is linked to what God has said and what God has done for you, it will always overshadow the approval and the hype of any man, any organization, and any culture. It can never outdo what God has done and said for you. I think when you and I begin to realize that we have weaknesses and limitations and that we are not God, and furthermore, when our significance and our worth is attached to what God has said and not what others say, I think, I think then that you and I can begin to realize that it's not just that hype can be inflated, but that also hype can be incidental. It's not just that hype is inflated, but hype is also incidental. Uh, Notice where the story goes on next. He says, uh, verse 15, but men, why are we doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. I want you guys to imagine for a moment a guy who has walked into a convenience store. Uh, He buys a $5 lottery ticket, all right? Uh, the clerk pushes a button, machine randomly computes numbers, puts it on a ticket. He finds out a few days later that he's won the lottery, all right? Now imagine that guy at a press conference with all kinds of fame and acclaim and notoriety coming to him. And imagine him in that press conference having all kinds of arrogance and condescension to everyone else in his life. <laughs> As if he's better than everyone else because he's sitting here having won the lottery. That would be absolutely preposterous because you and I all realize that that kind of acclaim and fame came to him by pure accident, by pure chance, right? We can grasp that, but I think for many of us, when acclaim and the approval of man finds us because of maybe our looks, because some of us are drop-dead beautiful, all right? Others of us not, all right? That's all right. Uh, Some of us are incredibly skilled and talented. I don't know why. You guys are all beautiful, all right? Sorry. Uh, I don't know what that's about, all right? But whether it's your looks or whether it's your skill sets, your capabilities, your accomplishments now or later, I'm so sorry. Um, No matter what it is, you guys are incredibly gifted, incredibly skilled, and incredibly talented, and success is going to find you guys. The approval of man is going to find you guys. If it hasn't now, it will later at some point in time, all right? And the question is, when it finds you, why do you think it found you? Because of your looks, because of your skill sets, because of your capabilities. Some of you guys will think, because I am great. The lottery winner is preposterous to think that. But when you and I look at our looks, our skill sets, our capabilities, our education, it's easy for us to begin to think that it's something about me. I think Paul and Barnabas realized very easily and very greatly that it was not about them Uh, One of my favorite uh, uh, preachers tells us a story of the fact that he was heading home on a Sunday after church. He felt pretty good about his sermon. He felt pretty good about the response of the crowd. And he leaned over to his wife as they were driving home as he felt pretty good about himself. And he said to his wife, honey, how many truly great preachers do you think there are? His wife said to him at the time, 
I think there's probably one less than you think there is. <laughs> Realizing that in that moment of time, he had begun to begin to think that maybe this was about him, right? That the applause, the approval of man was maybe about him, and it's not about him at all. It's not about the lottery winner, and it's not about you and I with whatever success finds us. And Paul or Barnabas got that. Which is why you see in their response when the success and the hype and the approval of man finds them, notice that their response is immediate to knock it off, but also to redirect it. So this is the reason why we preach the gospel, so that you would turn from vain uh, things and, and idols to a living God. And what Paul and Barnabas are going to do here as the approval of man and the hype of man finds them is they're going to take that as an opportunity because they know that it's not about them. And they're going to redirect it to God. Notice, notice how Paul will go on and notice what he'll say of God himself. He's going to, I think, provide four basic descriptions of God. First, he's going to say that he's a living God at the end of verse, uh, in the middle of verse 15, that we preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Our God is alive. Therefore, he's alive. Therefore, we should redirect praise to him because he's worthy of it. But he's not just a living God, but he's also a creating God. Notice how he continues on. This God has made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. He's not just a living and a creating God, but he's also a loving God. Verse 17. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. And he's also a satisfying God, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Approval of a man finds Paul and Barnabas. <laughs> they realize that it's inflated, that it's not accurate. And so they shut it down. And they also realize it's actually not about them. It's completely incidental. And so they redirect it to where it's actually due and who it's actually for. I think one of the things I love about Paul and Barnabas is that they realize that when men were moving to worship, that what they were looking for was not them. And as you receive praise and as you receive applause and as people begin to respond and lift you up and with whatever successes you may find now or later, realize that what people are looking for is not you. What they're looking for is a God who's alive, who's creative, who's loving, and who's satisfying. The men are going to lift Paul and Barnabas up and proclaim them to be gods because they think that they are who they're looking for. And Paul and Barnabas are going to say, no, here's who you're looking for. They're going to take it as an opportunity to redirect praise. It's interesting, though, despite all of their efforts, notice what happens to the crowds. Verse 18, even saying these things with difficulty, they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. No matter how much effort they put in, the crowds would not stop worshiping them. I think the crowds there are no different than the crowds today. I think you and I live in a culture that is crazed for celebrities that wants to worship left and right. I'm amazed by how many uh, celebrities there are. I'm amazed by the magazines, the paparazzi, how much of an industry is really built around the raising and the exalting of certain individuals to be celebrity status so that they can be honestly worshipped. All right. It's true in athletics. It's true in entertainment. It's true in music. It's true in every arena that we loft and we exalt individuals to such esteem, such pedestals, that really it's not just about Heisman's, but it's about worship, honestly. And our culture is starving and is absolutely obsessed with that kind of thing. I'm amazed by even the shows that are about wives of celebrities for Pete's sakes, right? It's not even to the celebrities themselves, but can I just watch their wives? And maybe the celebrity will come in the show at some point, right? What is the deal there? It's crazy. Our culture and our natural instincts are very much all about the worship of those that we think are creative, that are alive, that are satisfying. There's no one that is alive, that's satisfying and loving like God. So as Paul and Barnabas receive that opportunity of worship as it finds them, they take every opportunity to redirect it. I want to challenge you guys not just to be growing in humility now, but even now 
when you receive praise and the applause of man, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, begin now to learn to redirect it to praise God in it. As others praise you and as others congratulate you or as they encourage you or they applaud you, always take that moment and begin now, even when it's small, even when you're insignificant, potentially in the grand scheme of of exposure, begin now to develop a pattern of not just growing in humility, but realizing that hype and the approval of man is incidental, therefore it's not yours. So thank God for it and redirect them to him who's enabled you to do those things. It's never about you. It's about the one who's enabled you to do that, that has brought the approval of man because they're looking for something that's beyond you. Paul Barnabas got that. I think Paul Barnabas realized one last thing as well, that it wasn't just that hype was inflated, that it's incidental. But I think lastly, they also realized that hype comes only for an instant and then it's gone. It's fascinating. Look at verse 18 again. They said all of these things and the crowds will not stop worshiping them. And yet notice what happens in verse 19. One verse later. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. We are one verse later. (laughs) One verse. Success and hype comes overnight, and it leaves overnight. (laughs) In our culture, I'd say it comes within an hour as things trend on Twitter, and then it's gone within the hour, all right? Hype and acclaim and fame come that fast and they are gone that fast. And so when they had it, it didn't impact Paul and Barnabas. And when they lost it, it didn't impact him either. They were the same people when it came as when it left. They stayed on the same task when it came and when it left. They realized it only came for an instant. No matter your political persuasions, I loved an interview that uh, President, former President George Bush did a few years ago when he released a book called Decision Points, kind of an inside glimpse into his presidency. And the commentator, the interviewer at the time asked him, he said, when you left office, your, your popularity numbers were at an all-time low, all right? President Bush at one point uh, going into the war had uh, approval ratings that were above 90%. Nine out of every 10 people thought he was doing a bang-up job, all right? By the time he left office, all right, they were at 30%. All right, and so the interviewer asked him, uh, how did you respond to that? And, and notice his response. He says, no, I didn't take it seriously then. Asking the interviewer, asking him, hey, did it bother you that you were that low in your approval ratings when you left office? And he said, no, it didn't, I didn't take it seriously then when I was at 90%, and I didn't take it seriously when I left office when I was at 30%. Somebody, in fact, somebody walked up to me the other day and said, congratulations, your popularity is, a, is way up since you left office. That's encouraging. Um, And he continues on, he says, and my answer was, so what? I mean, if you chase popularity, you're chasing a moment, you're chasing a poof of air. It's true for presidents, it's true for athletes, it's true for actors, it's true for any celebrity, and it's true for you and I. I don't know how small or how large success and the hype and the approval of man will find you, but it will find you at some point. And then it will leave you at some point. For Paul, it will be in verse 18, and it will be gone by verse 19. (laughs) Could you have any greater of a contrast? From one moment being proclaimed as gods and being worshipped, even though he was trying to push against it, to the next verse, they leave him outside of the city as an outcast who they stone and they leave for dead. <laughs> contrast could not be more stark. Because hype is here and it's gone and it lasts only for an instant, all right? And so Paul and Barnabas are not that concerned with grabbing it. It's fascinating as we look at our cultures. I think there are so many celebrities, frankly, that they've had it, and then when it's gone, they have no idea what to do. And it frankly becomes entertaining to see their pathetic comeback attempts to recapture that limelight and recapture that kind of glory. I mean, how many more washed up actors and athletes do we need to see on dancing reality shows just so they can recapture a little bit of limelight, right? Emmett Smith, for Pete's sakes. 
NFL rushing you know, champion of the NFL, and now he's got to go dance just to get a little bit of attention. Right? That when you've had that kind of limelight, it can change you. I'm not saying it did for Emmett or for some of these athletes, but it's incredibly difficult to not be changed by it. And then when it departs, it's incredibly difficult to not be chasing after it. Now, I can guarantee you, if you were chasing it to get it, and then it left you, you will chase it to get after it Right when it leaves you. The reality is, notice what Paul and Barnabas will do in the aftermath of this. They leave him for dead at the end of verse 19. And notice verse 20. Notice how Luke will tell us in, in, in the sense of which Paul and Barnabas will continue doing all that they had done before it ever found them and before it ever left them. Verse 20. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and he entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In the aftermath of this, as Paul will be left for dead, he's going to get back up and he's going to continue to do the very thing he was doing when the hype and the approval of man found him. For Paul and Barnabas, they were unchanged when it found them and when it left them. For Paul and Barnabas, they were unchanged in the task and the mission and the call they had upon their lives when it found them and when it left them. I love the way the section ends. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That for Paul and for Barnabas, their chief focus, what they were running after with all of their intent and all of their purpose was the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of God that Jesus will be speaking of in the 40 days after his resurrection as he's speaking to the nation of Israel and Jews and those that were listening. It will be the kingdom of God that the disciples were concerned with, wondering when would Jesus restore that kingdom? And here the apostles are spreading a message of good news so that the kingdom of God could go out and be established from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When the approval of man found them, they were pursuing a kingdom that would last. And when the approval of man left them, it showed them just how lasting the kingdom was that they were pursuing because it would not be overturned overnight. It also wouldn't be built overnight. And so for Paul and Barnabas, they were unchanged as individuals and they were unchanged in the tasks that they were pursuing. And so I want to ask you this morning, How do you respond to the approval of man? Are you chasing after it? Is it a barometer for your significance and your worth? Because if so, it's always going to be overshadowed by what God has said, and you'll never answer that question apart from what God has said and done for you. Again, that's the beauty of the gospel. That Jesus has died, that he's resurrected, and he's given you the power and the ability to be forgiven of your sins and to have eternal life. And also realize that your significance is attached to that one and to the kingdom that is coming eventually, the one that we may not see now, but the one that we've been tasked to establish and to spread and to see developed and lifted up. What kingdom are you pursuing? What thing are are you investing your life into? I want to remind you in the midst of finals that are coming, in the midst of all the pressures that are going to be upon you guys, uh, for some will come applause, for some will come stress, for some will come all kinds of things. I want to remind you of the kingdom it is that you are pursuing. And that your school does fit into that kingdom. But again, don't lose sight of ultimately what God has called you to and who he wants you to be. And that in this place, in this time, you are being prepared for the kind of success he may have for you in the future, whether it be small or large. As you're sitting in a library cubicle where no one knows you and where you're suffering, God is cultivating in you a heart of diligence, a heart of humility, realizing how desperately you are in need of him. And this is training ground. This is preparation ground for the kind of heart that he's trying to craft, the kind of character he's trying to build, the kind of perspective he's trying to shape so that you can be all that he has designed you to be as you leave this place, so that you can handle the kind of success that he may, in his kindness and his grace, accomplish through you. But are you preparing now? 
And will you throw off that preparation or will you embrace it and be learned and be shaped by it? Tyler and the crew is going to come back up and we're going to respond in worship. I want to give you guys a chance for the rest of our morning just to respond and to sit before the Lord, asking, hey, where is my significance? Where is my worth? How do I respond to the approval of man and the hype of man? Have I failed to realize that it's, not in, that it's inflated, that it's incidental, that it's not about me, that it's really accurate, and that it only comes and lasts for just an instant? Ultimately, I want you guys to be able to come before the Lord and just sit before him and say, hey, Lord, what is it you would have for me and how is it you would have me to respond this morning? Father, I want more of you. I want to be shaped by you. I want your voice and your claim to matter more to me than anyone else's. Will you create in me that kind of heart and that kind of heartbeat?